1 Corinthians 14. Continuing our march, we're almost done, just as a reminder. Uh, I'm going to preach this week on the first part of 1 Corinthians 14. I'm going to finish the chapter next week, and then some of our elders are going to preach in the subsequent, uh, in the following weeks. Uh, We do have a pastor from another church in town coming to preach to us in two weeks, Tommy Bosworth from uh, from, uh, from Grace Bible and Sanger, looking forward to hosting him as he preaches the word, a faithful, faithful brother and a great preacher. You're going to be blessed by him. Um, and then beginning the Sunday after Thanksgiving, uh, we're going to begin five weeks, and we're going to spend all five weeks between that Sunday and Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve falls on a, sa- on a Sunday this year. Every Sunday between that Sunday and Christmas Eve, we're going to spend in 1 Corinthians 15 considering the blessed hope of our future resurrection. I can't think of a better way to spend Advent than to close out the book like that. So we're going to do that following Thanksgiving, okay? 1 Corinthians 14. Let me get there. Here now the reading of God's Word. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you to all speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Even if lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, well, then who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will will be speaking into the air There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough. But the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. 
Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I, will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers." If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to an account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Amen. Many in the world are looking for spiritual experiences. That's really the focus of the chapter. But what does a spiritual gathering of the church look like? What does it sound like? What are people going to see and hear and experience in a truly spiritual gathering? Will it look like Speaking in all kinds of different tongues at once, confusion, that's what we seem to have in this church. And this church seems to think that that is the pinnacle of a spiritual meeting. And so here, the Apostle Paul is going to try to correct something that is especially challenging this congregation. And yet at the same time, it has relevance for us today as God's Word always does. But as we go through, I want you to consider three things. It's the basic logic of the argument that I just read. Number one, in verses one through five, love desires prophecy especially. Love desires prophecy especially. And that's because in verses six to 19, edification requires intelligible words. You can't be built up if you don't understand it. But not only does edification require intelligible words, verses 20 to 25, so does our evangelism. And that's what we're going to see in the closing paragraph. Love desires prophecy especially because edification requires intelligible words and so does our evangelism. That's the logic of the text. Follow along with me beginning in verse 1. Paul says, first of all, here's the command, pursue love. And from that, he says, I want you to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Now, if you have a New American Standard Bible, then you'll notice that word gifts is italicized, and that's because it's not in the original Greek. Literally, it says spiritual things. Paul is teaching them how to be spiritual as God's church. This is a theme that is coursed all the way through the letter. And so, just by way of review, all the way back in chapter 2, verse 13, the Apostle Paul says to be spiritual is to receive God's apostolic message, that the revealing of the mystery of the gospel in Christ preached by the apostles. Then again, in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 and following, he gives them a call to spiritual maturity. He says, the apostles now have laid this foundation, and others are going to come along and build on it. We're to build up the church using gospel words, lasting materials. 
Later on in chapter 9, just a handful of weeks ago, Paul says, we have sown spiritual things among you, those things related to the gospel fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even just last week in chapter 13, or two weeks ago rather, Paul points out that the mark of the Holy Spirit is love, that it's using spiritual gifts not for our own exaltation, but for the building up of other believers. And so now, beginning in verse 14, on the heels of chapter 13, which is why we had Alex read it earlier today, Paul's concern is not that you and I build the, give it the biggest gift portfolio, but rather that we shape our lives together in a truly spiritual way. He wants the gospel word to abound so that the church is built up. With that desire in place, he says that's going to that's gonna govern and guide how it is that we use and, and desire certain gifts. And here, the two gifts that he has in view, as you already noticed, is prophecy and speaking in a tongue. And so, it's worth, I think, taking just a few minutes to consider the differences between the two. We consider, first of all, just scanning through verses 2, 3, and 4, the different outcomes. We can see, first of all, that Speaking in a tongue is clearly speech, and it seems here that it's speech directed at God. In fact, they might even have gospel content. That's what's meant by that word mysteries. He utters mysteries in the Spirit. Paul always uses mysteries to refer to the content of the gospel revealed by God all through the Old Testament and now fully revealed in the coming of Christ and of His purposes for His church. But he says here that the problem with tongues is that no, nobody hearing them understands them, and that doesn't do anybody any good. Anyone, that is, except for the one speaking them. That's why Paul says in verse 5, I want all of you to speak in tongues. But he wants to be clear in the opening paragraph that tongues by themselves do nothing to ultimately build up the church. And so in some churches today, in some ministries today, it's taught that speaking in tongues, well, that's a key mark of a truly spirit-filled Christian life. Beloved, listen to me. That is profoundly wrong. It is contrary to the Scriptures. And what it does is it creates a kind of two-tiered church, the haves and the have-nots, the varsity Christians that have been filled with the Spirit through a kind of second baptism, evidenced by the speaking of tongues, and now a junior varsity team that hasn't yet attained to that higher spiritual life. But we just learned all the way back in chapter 12, didn't we, that every Christian is filled with the Spirit from the time of their conversion. And so if you're a Christian, you're spiritual. And if you're spiritual, then you're a Christian. Chapter 13, he follows up that by reminding us that the key mark of the spiritual person isn't ultimately speaking in tongues, the key mark of the spiritual life of a truly spiritual person is love. That there's nothing distinctly Christian about speaking in a tongue, but there is something distinctly Christian about love. In context, here's Paul's point. That if we're all pursuing love and we're desiring spiritual things as we ought to be, then we'll be thankful for tongues, but we are going to be eager for prophecy. That's what we see in verse 3. Because consider what it does to other people. It works to their upbuilding, prophecy encourages, and it consoles, it comforts. 
That if all of us are filled with the Spirit, then all of us are to pursue love. That's distinctly Christian. And if all of us are pursuing love, then we're going to desire spiritual things. And those spiritual things which you and I are going to desire are going to be those things which build up the church with gospel words. So Christian love is eager for prophecy, not for tongues. That's Paul's argument. But I want to take it a step further. Because we need to move toward clearer definitions on each one of them. What exactly is a tongue and what exactly is prophecy? Notice that neither one of them is explicitly defined in our passage. We only here get part of the picture, and so we need to consider everything that we see here in chapter 14, and then we need to consider chapter 14 in the context of the whole letter. And then we need to consider the whole letter in the context of the whole Bible. We're going to see Paul bringing in the Old Testament later on in the passage, Isaiah 28. Now, some Christians, godly Christians, might disagree with me here, but I want us to see that regardless of what we think about tongues and prophecy, Paul's message does not change. That when the church comes together, he wants us to speak words that build us up, and that is our chief spiritual concern. That's Paul's concern here. So how then are we going to understand tongue speaking? Well, follow along with me. In the Bible, the word from tongue can mean two things. It can be referring, first of all, to our tongues, eh, the tongue in your mouth, or it can mean a known language. Though it may sound like gibberish to those who don't understand, it's really not gibberish at all. It's an intelligible language that has Meaning, that's the key to understanding what a tongue is. So when Kathy and I were newly married, for instance, still do this a little bit to this day, but when we were newly married and her mom was living in Houston, Guadalupe, right down here, they would speak on the phone at length and they would talk in Spanish and it sounded to me like gibberish. And I don't know what she's saying. But it's not gibberish. They understand what they're saying. It benefits each one of them because they understand it, even if it doesn't benefit me at all. And that's the point. We see in chapter 12, verse 10, that, quote, there are various kinds of tongues. That's clarified even further here in chapter 14. Glance down at verse 10. Those various kinds of tongues are described as many different languages. And yet Paul says none of them are without meaning. You see that there? So, in the context of the letter, tongue speaking is a gift that comes from God. It is truly speech. There are various kinds, and it carries real information with gospel content. It's not gibberish. And so, beyond the letter, the only other place in the New Testament, anywhere else that we see tongues described is going to be in Acts chapter 2. And just follow along with me for the sake of time. In the first chapter of Acts, we see Jesus ascend to heaven. And in the very next chapter, chapter 2, He gives His Holy Spirit to His people just like He promised. And that's so that they might take the gospel out to the ends of the earth, establish His apostles to build the foundation for the church, and then for the church to preach that gospel out to the very ends of the earth. That's the mission of the church. And when the Spirit was given... We read in Acts chapter 2 that the apostles were able to speak in, quote, various kinds of tongues. 
And now at that time, if you read through the chapter, at that time, devout men from every nation under heaven are gathered in Jerusalem. They're listening to the preaching. And they were utterly bewildered at the apostles' preaching because in chapter 2, verse 6, here's what it says, quote, each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And so amazed, here's what they ask, two verses later in verse 8. How is it, they ask, that each one of us is hearing in our own native language? That is that people from all kinds of nationalities, from all over the known world were present, and they said a couple verses later, verse 10, quote, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So, beloved, we are on sure footing to say that tongues are human languages given as gifts. The speaker may not himself understand it, at least not well enough to interpret for others. That's why they need an interpreter. We'll consider that in a minute. But they're nevertheless intelligible human languages. But now the question comes, especially from our maybe more Pentecostal friends. They're going to say, well, what about inhuman languages? What about the tongues of angels. Isn't that what we just saw in chapter 13, verse 1? Even if I speak in the tongues of angels? Well, I think we have to grant that the possibility that it's referring to angelic languages, but I want to give you what I think is the more likely and the better way to understand it. I think it's more likely that Paul, in chapter 13, verse 1, when he's talking about the tongues of angels, is using a rhetorical device. He's exaggerating to make his point, as if to say, even if I could speak in the tongues of angels, what I'm saying would still be true. We speak this way all the time, don't we? One of our kids gets in trouble, and we say, why did you do that? And they say, well, Johnny told me to do that. And we say, I don't care if the President of the United States told you to do that. You don't do it. Paul's saying, theoretically speaking, there are no tongues so high, so spiritual, so angelic that they render love unnecessary. You might recall that Paul uses angels in a similar way in Galatians 1, that even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preached, let him be accursed. Which means that there's no higher message, no higher spirituality, no higher authority than God that you could possibly conceive of that can undermine the gospel that God has delivered to me. And he's using the same kind of theoretical situation, I think, in 13. So is Paul talking about an inhuman language that, that has no human meaning? In chapter 13, that's what many of our Pentecostal friends understand in, in the unknown, what we might consider kind of gibberish-sounding words that they use, that it's angelic language. I don't think that's what Paul means at all. Given what we see in the rest of the Bible, it's not likely really at all. Every tongue is, is given by God. It's an intelligible human language carrying real information with gospel content. It's centered on the gospel. But now what about prophecy? We just try to quickly define what do we mean by tongues, but what about prophecy? How does it differ? This is where I think seeing the chapter and the context of the whole letter is, is helpful, specifically about the earnest desire for spiritual things. 
Recall that spiritual things are not new revelations from God. They are rooted, as we already considered, in the apostolic word. So when Paul says desire spiritual, spiritual things, he's talking about those spiritual things that he has sown into them by his apostolic authority. They're not new revelations from God, but they are rooted in the apostolic word. So when Paul says desire spiritual things, especially prophecy, he's telling them to desire to speak gospel words, verse 3, that console, encourage, and build up. Even, as we'll see at the end of our passage, verses 20 to 25, even that brings salvation. So it should be clear then that Paul is not talking about the kind of prophecy spoken about in the Old Testament because it doesn't have the same authority. The Old Testament prophets spoke God's Spirit-inspired Word. That's Moses and Isaiah, Ezekiel and others speaking about God's mighty works in Israel and foretelling a future work, a greater work in the promised Messiah. We might call this capital P, prophecy. Those are capital P, prophets. And this kind of revelation was fulfilled and completed in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We just studied the book of Hebrews. Many of you remember that. So you'll remember the opening verses of Hebrews chapter 1, that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Note, God is not now speaking to us through Jesus. He has spoken by His Son. There is no more or higher revelation to have than what God has revealed about Himself in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He is the icon, the image of the invisible God. There's nothing more to be added. The mystery of the gospel has been revealed in Him. God has spoken to us fully and finally by His Son. And Jesus, if you remember, promised in John 14 and 17 that the Holy Spirit was going to come. The Holy Spirit would then remind them of all that Jesus has revealed to them and then would then guide them into the truth concerning the mystery of the gospel. So, whereas the Old Testament prophets revealed the gospel as a mystery, the apostles taught how that mystery is revealed in Christ in the church. Let me say that again. Whereas the Old Testament prophets revealed the gospel as a mystery, the apostles taught how that mystery revealed by the, by the prophets is finally revealed in Christ and His purposes for the church through the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2, both the prophets and apostles form the gospel foundation of the church because their message, both the prophets and the apostles, are all about Jesus, and He's the cornerstone. This is what we see in chapter 12, verse 28. If you remember back just a couple of chapters ago, God appoints some as capital A apostles, and He appoints others as capital P prophets. Both were filled with the Spirit for the specific purpose of establishing the church on a firm gospel foundation. And now following these, God gives additional gifts such as teachers to receive that revelation, then teach and apply it to local churches for the common good until Christ returns again. And that kind of teaching is not capital P prophecy, but we might consider it to be, in the context of 1 Corinthians 14, lowercase p prophecy. 
the speaking of gospel words for the mutual upbuilding in the church. Now, that mutual upbuilding, that prophecy, it certainly includes preaching, which is what I'm aiming to the best of my ability with God's help to do now. That's how the Puritans understood it, that to prophesy was to preach, but it's not in the Scriptures just limited to preaching. And it's not just pastors that do this kind of teaching, though every qualified pastor or elder in a church does have to be able to teach. Consider Romans 12. It says that we are to teach one another. In Titus 2, older men are to teach younger men. Older women are to teach younger women. Colossians 2 tells us that when we sing as a church, just as we did this afternoon, we are, quote, teaching and admonishing one another. Why? So that the Word of Christ would dwell richly in us. In all of these ways, we prophesy in a lowercase p sense. That is, we speak forth gospel words to build up and edify the church. And there's a sense in which lots of us are involved in it in lots of different ways. And so, pursuing love, the Apostle Paul says, this is ultimately what you should desire. Even and over and above the seemingly spectacular gift of tongues, desire to speak gospel words in the church. Desire those things which build up. Love always builds up. That's the goal. And so, you can see now why it's important then that we understand this distinction, because ultimately what it does is it rules out other Christians standing over us and telling us, I've received a word from the Lord for you, and saying to us, God told me that you must do this or that you must do that. The implication, of course, being that if we disagree with them or that if we don't do that or if we do do the opposite, then we're opposing God Himself. In that way, it makes us Lord over the conscience, and God alone is Lord over the conscience. A right understanding of prophecy, as I've just explained it, cuts out that kind of manipulative power play in the church. Only Scripture has that kind of authority. It's complete, it's sufficient, it builds up the church, and next week we're going to say that everything that we speak has to be weighed and ruled and judged by it. And so what then is prophecy? It's no less than spiritually enabled speech that uses God's Word to build up, to encourage, and to comfort the church. We do this all the time, don't we? We do it in our small groups. We do it in our one another groups, our fellowship groups. We do it in our lingering ministry after the gathering. We do it in youth ministry and men's and women's ministry. It's not just the preacher getting up to preach. In all of these ways, when we speak God's Word to God's people with the aim to edify, we are, in this sense, prophesying, speaking forth God's Word with intelligible meaningful gospel content that the Holy Spirit then uses to build up and edify His church, that we might all together persevere through this life and into the next by faith in Christ. And so that's the longest section. They're not all going to be that long. I just needed to set the table and define some things from these first handful of verses that we are to desire prophecy, especially because in verses 6 to 19, Building up requires intelligible words. Paul's going to say to the church that if you're concerned for spiritual things, then you need to rein back speaking in ways that people can't understand, and you need to be more concerned about speaking in ways that they can. 
Look at verse 6. Paul wants, uh, wants words that build. Here, if you scan through it, he wants intelligible words. Words that speak gospel words for building up. Because if the words can't be understood, then there's no benefit. That's the point of verse 7. Then in verses 7 and 8, he uses an illustration using instruments. That even if lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp or the nord over here, do not give distinctive notes. How will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle or the Nord gives an indistinct sound, then who will get ready for battle? If the Nord piano made no noise and my wife Kathy got up to play it and nobody heard it, then the Nord is worthless. But if it does work and she gets up there and she just starts smashing away in some kind of like crazy, chaotic, cacophonous way, It'll make a bunch of confusing noise, and none of us are going to respond to it the way that we should. We're all going to go, huh? And that's Paul's point. Verse 9, he says it's the same with speech. That if nobody knows what you're saying, then you're just blowing air. It's worthless. It doesn't edify. It doesn't build up. And he pushes this point home in verses 10 through 11. Notice as you scan through there, he says that there's lots of languages in the world, but if I don't know the meaning, then I'm going to be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker's going to be a foreigner to me. It's like you plopped both of us in a foreign land where neither one of us speak one another's language or the language around us where we have no use to one another. That's Paul's point. It doesn't do anything. It is powerless. And that's What meaning means in verse 11. You see that word in your Bible, meaning? It says, for I do not know the meaning of the language. It's translated from the same Greek word for power, dunamine. It's where we get our word dynamite. If there's no meaning, there's no power. And if there's no power, then there's no benefit to the church. Verse 12, he presses on. He tells them, if you're so eager to be used by the Spirit in powerful ways, then he says, strive to excel. Literally abound in the spiritual things that build up. He's saying, strive for intelligible gospel words. That's what you should prize above all. That's what the Spirit uses to establish and build up and to console spiritual people. It's how he builds spiritual churches. In verse 13, Paul then answers a burning question. Well then, Paul, if that's, the, if that's the case, is there any place for tongues at all in the church's gathering? Paul says, yes, but only with interpretation. You can just scan beginning in verse 13 all the way through the end of verse 17. I'll just read it. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? Well, I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. In Corinth, the temple cults are full of the clanging and the banging of cymbals. But the idols themselves were mute. They could not speak. There was no speech to engage the mind. The idols, prophets then, would rave with ecstatic speech, and yet they would remain unintelligible. He says, you're not like that. 
You're God's temple. You're not a pagan temple, and you can't act like it. God is a God of order. He's revealed Himself. And so we worship in an orderly way, not in a chaotic way, and we speak in intelligible ways because God has condescended to speak to us, to reveal Himself to us. So your worship can't look like the worship from pagan temples because His Spirit dwells in you. So he says, if you have the gift of tongues, an intelligible language from God that is full of gospel words, that's our definition, don't use it when the church gathers unless you have an interpretation. That's what he's instructing this church. Because he's saying we don't just engage the Lord with all of our hearts and all of our strengths. We aim to love the Lord also with all of our minds that the Lord has created. And here's what's remarkable. Once a tongue is translated, it goes from being a tongue and it becomes a prophecy. And speaking intelligible gospel words that build up, that's what we're after all along. So tongues only serve prophecies. Prophecies don't serve tongues. Prophesying the words of God to build up the people of God to the glory of God is the end game for the ministry of the church. And that's what we see here. So listen, I don't want you to think for a minute that Paul is in any way negative about tongues. We see that he's positive about tongues. He gives thanks for them. And we can be positive about all of God's gifts too. But Paul doesn't want any unknown tongue going uninterpreted in the church's gathering. Any human language with meaning filled with gospel content being spoken in a way that doesn't edify other people when they're gathered. And he says, look at verse 18 and 19. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. 10,000 words. A 50-minute sermon for me is roughly 4,000 words. 10,000 words would be close to a a two-and-a-half-hour sermon. Paul's saying, it'd be better for me to use five intelligible, meaningful words, Jesus is Lord and Savior, than for me to preach 10,000 words over the course of two and a half hours in an unknown tongue that you would never understand. And then all the children's ministry people in Corinth went, amen, Paul. Leave it to five words. So he says, we're to desire prophecy over tongues. Because building up the church requires intelligible words. That's the point of verses 6 to 19. But then in verses 20 to 25, we need intelligible words also for our evangelism. Follow along with me. Beginning in verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Rather, he says, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. That's really the key to the whole passage, be mature in your thinking. Don't be like little babies. He has put that all throughout the letter. Verse 21, in the law, it is written by people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Here we have the Apostle Paul quoting from Isaiah 28. Isaiah, in Isaiah 28, is calling Israel's leaders to repentance and faith in the Word of God. It was a simple message, it was a plain message, and they mock him for it. And they all say he sounds foolish and that he's just babbling like a baby. 
So here's what Isaiah says. Because they wouldn't listen to God, he warned them of a judgment to come, and the judgment came with the sound of strange languages. That would be the Assyrian invasion. And so here's a surprising and a shocking thing. What Paul's doing is taking the truth of Isaiah 28, that's the unintelligible language. As God promised in Deuteronomy, was evidence of God's judgment against Israel for their unbelief and their wickedness, Here's how Paul is applying the passage in a shocking way. He says, if all you do is speak in unknown tongues and someone who's not a Christian walks in, it is the same as speaking judgment to them. And this is so key. And I've not yet heard any of my Pentecostal friends preach Isaiah 28 in context in this chapter. I would love to hear it. Send it to me if you don't want But if you speak in unintelligible ways, not only does it not edify, but it doesn't evangelize. You are, in essence, speaking judgment to them. Verse 22, thus tongues are a sign. Here he is interpreting Isaiah 28 for us. Tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. And if, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues... And outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? So some of you might see videos that come across Facebook or Twitter of churches in which it looks like total chaos and the speaking of tongues and the dancing and the banging of tambourines and things like that. And that may be somewhat amusing to us, especially when somebody puts a good beat behind it on Facebook. But notice what the Apostle Paul says, that if an unbeliever comes in and all they see is chaos and all they hear is the cacophony of clanging cymbals, if there's nothing intelligible whatsoever, then they are going to think you're crazy and you are only speaking judgment against them. Friend, if you're here and you're looking on on Christian things and I wonder if you were to walk into our gathering and everybody was speaking different languages at the same time and and you didn't understand any of it, would you in that way be persuaded to follow Jesus? Paul says it's likely that you won't because you haven't heard the content of the good news of Jesus Christ. You haven't heard anything about the saving work of Jesus. And you may even think that we're a bit crazy. But the Bible, and I hope you've seen this in some way as you've been with us, the Bible commands us as Christians and as a church to speak and to sing and to pray in orderly ways so that the good news of Jesus might be clear to you. And that good news is no less than the very Son of God who has existed for eternity with His Father, not as two gods but as one, took on human flesh and became a man, truly man, just like you and I are human suffered in every way that you and I suffered, was tempted in every way that you're tempted, yet without sin. In His perfect obedience to the Father, unlike your disobedience and my disobedience, was an obedience that endured all the way to His death on a cross. And that death on a cross was no accident of history. He didn't die on a cross because He didn't run fast enough. He went willingly Because the only way that your sins can be removed is by the shedding of His blood. The only way an eternal offense against an eternal God for the breaking of His law 
can be assuaged and removed as if the eternal Son of God becoming a man earns full righteousness for you and dies in your place. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of eternal life is given to you by God in Jesus Christ should you repent and believe in Him. So what ultimately separates us in here from you is not that we're more inherently self-righteous than others, not that we're more inherently spiritual. It's that all of us have been brought by God's grace to see our sin for what it is, and that we have a great hope in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and for the perfect righteousness that we need to receive eternal life as a free gift in Him. Oh, friend, I hope that in the words that you've heard sung and the prayers that you've heard pray, even in my attempt at preaching faithfully this afternoon, that it would be clear to you of your need for Christ and that you would receive Him by faith and rest in Him. Well, to the rest of us, church, I hope that you can see from these handful of verses that we've looked at so far how a disorderly, unintelligible assembly is unloving to our neighbors. Paul says at the beginning of the chapter to pursue love. Chaos and unintelligibility is unloving, and anything unloving is sinful. To do this would be unloving to our neighbors, to sing and to pray and to speak in confusing and unintelligible ways when we gather is to speak judgment against them because it's to keep the gospel hidden from them. It's to keep them ignorant from the gospel, and it is to keep them on the outside of God's covenant of grace. Shame on us and shame on any church that does that. It's contrary to Scripture, and they need to repent for doing it. And we need to labor in everything that we do to desire spiritual things, not sensational things, spiritual things, things that comfort and build up and instruct and exhort and correct and proclaim the good news of Jesus. That's the word ministry that He's given us. Because when God's word is spoken clearly and intelligibly in orderly ways, look at verse 24, that if all prophesy, that is speaking gospel words, then an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Isn't that amazing? That's Isaiah 40. Some of you might have that cross-reference in your Bible. In Isaiah 28, Isaiah says, judgment is coming, and the nations are coming to you in strange languages, and that's going to be a sign when you don't understand what they're saying, that God has judged you. We see it typologically fulfilled in Assyria and Babylon. We see it ultimately fulfilled at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the gospel goes to the nations. But Isaiah promises in Isaiah chapter 40 that God is doing a greater work He's going to establish a brand new covenant, and the Messiah is going to come, His suffering servant, and He is going to do such a work that when God's people repent and believe and are gathered in to His church, 
The nations are going to look at that great work. All of the nations in all of the world who previously spoke judgment against Israel under the old covenant are now going to hear the proclamation of the gospel and of the glories of the new covenant. And the nations now in their tongues are going to say this, Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, God is among you indeed. That is the hope of the gospel. It's an all-nations call that's intelligible, that every sinner in every place might repent of their sins and come to Christ by faith. It is not only necessary to have intelligible words for edifying the church, building it up, strengthening it, but intelligible words are necessary for our evangelization of the nations, that we make the gospel clear. So what does Paul say? Pursue love. Love aims to build up, and building up comes by speaking forth God's words to God's people, to God's glory, until Christ comes again. That's our ministry. That's what we desire. Let's pray.